The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight I'd like to talk again about concentration. We started this a couple weeks ago when I was last speaking, and I want to spend a little bit more time. Most of you know that uh, in Buddhist practice, there's a big deal made out of concentration, and it generally triggers a lot of (laughs) self-judgment, like, my concentration's not good enough. And we hear stories about people who have great concentration, and then we notice our scattered, distracted minds, and then we beat ourselves up, which, in case you haven't figured it out, is not the way to develop concentration. Judging yourself thinking you're a bad concentrator or something like that is the exact opposite. It's the agitation that disturbs the mind. There's a real art to concentration, and it doesn't matter if you're the one in the room who has the most distracted mind or you're the person in the room that has a natural talent for concentration. All of us here, we can learn how to make our minds more steady. It's just a a matter of knowing how to do that training and committing to it. Some of you might have seen Malcolm Gladwell's writing. He's quite well known now, often writes for The New Yorker, but has has had several best-selling books, including one, and I'm forgetting the title of it, where he, he basically talks in the book about mastery and what mastery takes. Anybody remember the title of that book? Outliers. Outliers? And uh, he did a lot of research. Uh, His books are great because he really digs in. And he found that it takes about 10,000 hours to master something. And we often, you know, we have these urban legends, you know, about these people appearing on the scene who just are naturally good at something. But if you really, and he did, if you really investigate, you see they put a lot of time in. And he gives some examples like, Bill Gates, who started Microsoft, you know, and he and a couple others started in a garage, and they were just, I don't know how, they were like 20 years old. And so you think, oh, you know, they didn't have 10,000 hours, but he actually looked at their history, and they went to this great high school that had a computer. So by the age of 16, they were full-fledged computer nerds in 1968, and they would sneak away later, when he was a little older, in the middle of the night, leave home and go to the University of Washington and use their computers. So he really got the hours in. And over and over again, he found these people who had a lot of success, who you might think didn't do all the sort of work that it takes to be a master at something, actually ended up putting a lot of time in. Now, I did the math. 10,000 hours, (laughs) one hour a day, how many years do you think that is? I mean, some of you are good at math. You can figure this out. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit more than 27 years to be a master at this. So it's okay not to feel very competent. <laughs> now, I'm actually, I've been practicing now for 82, so 20, 32 years, almost every day. Some days a lot more than an hour. 
So I'm kind of getting there right about now, you know, my 10,000 hours. And I feel like a beginner. <laughs> I mean, uh, a beginner who knows a few things. Um, but this is the attitude we want to take to training the mind. Like we're in it for the long haul. And whether you buy into this or not, and you don't, it's really actually good not to believe this, but I think it is good to keep an open mind about past lives, future lives. It's just skillful to think this way. Because if we think this mind stream, whatever that means, is going to be around for a while, we're really invested. Like, I'm now 56, you know, and if you think, oh, yeah, someday I'll die, and that will be it, well, maybe I'll just slide through this life, because that's it, you know. Why bother to train this mind when I only have 5, 10, 20, 30 years, or whatever you might imagine you have left when you're 56. But if you think this is just going to keep on repeating, like Groundhog's Day, if you ever saw that movie, <laughs> then all of a sudden we have every incentive to develop the heart, develop the mind for the long haul, to really set something beautiful, skillful in motion that will not only serve this life, but serve, just be a cause for wisdom, a cause for compassion in the world for a long time. And of course, in the next life, it won't be you or me, right? But somebody will have whatever <laughs> is unfinished in this mind stream. Somebody once asked a well-known Tibetan teacher, Tibetan Buddhist teacher, what gets reborn? And this person said, the neurotic tendencies of the mind. <laughs> That's what gets reborn. And this is kind of a traditional Buddhist teaching. It's like life, mind, stream, goes from one life to the next until there's no more unfinished business. And don't ask what happens then. <laughs> That's another, another talk. So we've been talking about the wholesome qualities of mind in the context of this list, which I'm strongly encouraging people to memorize, because it's only seven things, and evidently we can memorize seven things, and then after that it gets hard. So seven things are easy to remember. Mindfulness. These are the seven factors of awakening. When there are these seven qualities in our mind, in balance, insight can't be stopped. The mind will start understanding more deeply what it doesn't yet understand about the way it is. And the Buddha uses that analogy of just like water flowing down the mountain, gathering from streams to bigger streams to rivers, flowing eventually to the ocean. In the same way, if you cultivate these seven factors, and they're already in our minds, they're just not very necessarily very well developed. So if you develop them, strengthen them, balance them, then the mind will become wiser, more skillful, more loving. Can't be stopped. And of course, the Buddha always talks about things as a natural process. So it doesn't matter whether you're a good person or a bad person. If you cultivate these seven factors, your life will get purified. Your actions will be purified. Your mind will be purified. Your understanding will be purified. This is the very definition of this path. The purification of action, 
the purification of the mind, and the purification of understanding. And these are inevitable results when these factors are there because these factors in the mind, in the heart, make the mind or heart, cause the mind or heart to see things as they are. And the only thing that causes ignorance and ill will and all the negative qualities of mind is that the mind doesn't understand the way it is. It's ignorance, not somebody being ignorant. That doesn't make sense from these teachings' point of view because the way the Buddha understood and the way we can understand this, this experience as a human being, is there's just a lot of interdependent natural forces. And we have part of those interdependent natural forces that are at play is this sense it's happening to me. But that's just a thought. And so when we start seeing things as a natural process, including the inner experience as a natural process, then the question is, well, what are the supporting causes for this natural process that we call my mind to move in the direction of wisdom and compassion, greater skill, greater resilience? It's not about me being good or me being bad. It's about understanding the lawfulness of what makes the mind the way it is now and what this mind can do now that affects how the mind unfolds. Right? I could, I could spend my evening obsessing about certain things and that would affect how my mind unfolds for a while. I could make a systematic study tonight of all the people who betrayed me, all the people who hurt me, and I could whip up a force of anger and resentment and whatever in my mind that would reverberate for a while and likely make me want to keep bringing these people, these situations back up, right? And then that would affect how I relate to my wife and to the other people in my lives, which would affect how they relate to others. Or I could spend the evening reflecting on something else, like how the mind and everything else are just natural processes unfolding lawfully according to causes and conditions. And I could cultivate the qualities of mind that actually make it easier to see experience in this way, because it's subtle. So I need a very stable, clear, interested, tranquil, alert mind to do that, right? And I could really see how, like even the talk I'm giving, I could see how the decision of what to say, how to say it, the tone of voice, connecting with all of your body language and that sort of interaction you have when you're talking to a group of people. I could see how this right now is a natural process. And that even if self-consciousness were to arise, I could see that, well, that's just that. That's also part of the natural process that when I'm talking about the natural process, self-consciousness arises, and on and on like that. So we can learn to study experience in this way, and it really helps to do that. We really need these seven factors. So we have mindfulness, which is the essential one, 
keeping the present moment in mind. So it's the continuity of mindful presence. That's what we mean. So whenever you think about mindfulness, remember we're always talking about the continuity of it. It isn't really mindfulness unless there's some continuity, like moment to moment to moment. Because what mindfulness reveals is how things unfold, the lawfulness, one thing leading to the next. <coughs> what we you know, conventionally call cause and effect, or in Buddhism we call karma, the conditional nature of phenomena. So mindfulness allows the mind, supports the mind in keeping the present moment in mind, moment to moment to moment, which allows wisdom to grow. So then we have three energizing factors that are necessary and three tranquilizing factors. So we've been covering these since September. The tranquilizing factors of investigation, energy, and joy, joyful interest. And the tranquilizing factors of tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So now I'm digging into concentration a little bit more tonight, and then next week we'll go to equanimity. So they're not necessarily linear, but it can be useful to think of them as linear. For example, when we have the continuity of awareness, mindfulness, then we can investigate cause and effect. That's the second factor, investigation. We can be interested in how things are unfolding. Without the continuity of awareness, not really possible to investigate the way things unfold, the conditional nature of internal experience, external experience, or both. Everything is unfolding lawfully. When we investigate, we begin to see how valuable investigation is, like a sense of humility, how little the mind knows about how it all works, like how the mind gets all bound up in stress, how the mind can release, be released from stress. So as we investigate, energy begins to rise, the third factor, because the mind, from the investigation, it recognizes the value and it feels inspired to apply itself to the continuity of mindfulness and the investigation, the continued investigation. So a little feedback loop right there. Continuity of mindfulness allows for investigation. Investigation, paying attention to what the mind is doing. And when it's learning, when the mind and what it's doing is skillful, leading to states of release, and when what the mind is doing is not skillful, <coughs> leading to the heart, the body, the mind getting all bound up, tight, stressed. So that inspires the mind. The mind's willing to apply itself. It's got some energy now. And it feeds back in. So we got this feedback loop, and the mind starts to gather in that activity of investigating until rapture starts to arise. You know how this is when we're really engaged 100% in an activity we trust and think is wholesome, we know is wholesome, we feel it in our bones. It's a joy. When my wife and I and Denny, a good friend of ours and longtime leader at the center, raked our leaves in front of, finally, in front of the big storm that's coming tomorrow, in case you haven't heard. <laughs> Lots of snow and cold weather about to hit. And it really needed to get done. And it was a real joy to throw ourselves into it. I mean, just this is such a simple example 
of giving ourselves to the task at hand. And when it doesn't work, it's because we're ambiguous about whether this is really what needs to be done. But when we know it needs to be done, and we finally get off the fence and do it, doesn't it feel good? And when you do that 100%, notice you're actually experiencing joy. There is joy when the heart is fully engaged. And that's the fourth factor, the, the last of the energizing. So we have mindfulness, which is neither energizing nor tranquilizing, but it's the balancing factor. Investigation, energy, the application of the mind to the task at hand. And the more of these three things are working in tandem, we get joy or rapture arising in the mind. The mind is delighting in the wholeheartedness. It feels enlivened through this application, this wholeheartedness. And that's pleasant, of course. And the more pleasantness the mind or the heart experiences, it stops looking for pleasantness, because it has it. So that's the tranquility. The heart starts to relax. Ah, I'm happy. I don't need to neurotically look to be happy, which is agitating. I am happy. When the heart knows it's happy, it relaxes that part of the heart that's scrambling to be happy or wondering why I'm not happy or wondering why you're more happy than me. All of that neurotic activity begins to quiet down and that quieting down of neurotic activity is experiences tranquility. That's the first of the calming or tranquilizing factors. The more we have that pleasantness of tranquility, the heart relaxing its neurotic activity, the heart begins to settle into a more profound stillness, which we call concentration. So concentration really by definition is the agitating qualities in the mind like greed and aversion aren't there. They've fallen into the far into the background. Or another way is the mind doesn't need anything. It's craving has been suppressed. All craving has been suppressed for a while, is out of the mind for a while. So it's the stillness, concentration is the stillness of non-craving, of a mind or heart free of craving. Temporarily, because it will come back, obviously. So it's a little taste of liberation, a little taste of the mind or the heart free of craving. So it's very peaceful. Because craving is the basic force of wanting things to be other than they are. Even when we have a really nice experience, don't we want it to be other than it is? Like we want it to last longer, we don't want it to go away. You know, we have ice cream, but we want salted peanuts on the ice cream or chocolate sauce on the ice cream. Or we have a good friend, we're hanging out with a good friend, but we want to hang out with a good friend on a road trip instead of just you know, being where we are. So it's always, it always could be a little bit better. That's the sense. But when the mind is really tranquil, the heart, the mind settles into states of peace, what we call concentration. Now the interesting thing is, we can have a, a lot of doubt about concentration because we haven't necessarily experienced it. So, and 
when we've tried to experience it, we used greed to get it. Well, greed, wanting to be concentrated, is not the cause for concentration. So then we feel betrayed, like, well, I can't do it. It's not for me. I've got too restless of a mind. Or, you know, or we blame the technique or blame the teacher or blame the knee pain. Or We don't trust it. We don't trust the process. Here's what uh, a well-known teacher, a Buddhist monk in this country, Tane Sarobiku, he uh, is the abbot of a monastery outside of San Diego, Wat Metta. He's written quite a bit about uh, Buddhism and Buddhist meditation. And this is a great chapter. You can get this online, by the way. <clears throat> Bathed is the B-A-T-H-E-D. Bathed. And he's talking about mindfulness of breathing, which is one of the classic concentration techniques in Buddhist meditation practice. There are many, but mindfulness of breathing can be used both as a wisdom practice to develop insight, but also as a way to calm, tranquilize the mind into deep states of concentration. He's talking about staying with the sensations. Because with mindfulness of breathing, what we're doing is we're tuning in. To get to that state of stillness, which remember is the mind is letting go of greed. Right? So one technique is to ask the mind or train the mind to pay attention to something neutral. Like the breath or body sensations mostly are neutral. They're not charged for most of us most of the time. And so they're not going to trigger a lot of greed or aversion, knowing the in-breath coming in, knowing the out-breath going out. It's not going to trigger aversion. So if we can gather the attention there 100%, then that is a skillful way, a skillful means for abandoning greed, abandoning what's agitating in the mind. So it's really like keeping this in mind. And so Tanisaro Bhikkhu says, this is why the Buddha talks about concentration as an enlarged awareness. If your awareness is limited to one little spot, everything else gets squeezed out, everything gets blotted out, and what you have is ignorance. You're trying to make your awareness 360 degrees. So here's the thing about concentration and mindfulness of breathing. Same thing if you're using hearing like we did at the beginning of the set or just generally the body sensations. So there are many concentration objects but you can just think of those three if you're new to practice. Use your whole body, use sound, just naturally what the ears are hearing in any moment or the sensations of the breath at the nostrils or the movement of the belly rising and falling or however you can feel the physicality of breathing. So whatever meditation object you're working on to develop some concentration, remember, so with the breath you're breathing in, you're feeling the touching as the air goes in the nostrils and as you're breathing out, you're just feeling that ordinary experience of touching. And you're trying to track the experience, not to lose sight of it 
or lose the connection with the sensations. No gaps, no breaks. But normally when we think of concentration, we think of tensing the mind and pressing everything else away or moving everything else away and only this. But that's not quite right. I mean, that is a kind of concentration, but it's not what the Buddha would call right concentration. You know, we use fear and greed a lot to concentrate the mind. But this is a concentration that's very relaxed. You have to hear this, it's really important. The key for developing concentration is relaxation, not trying to get concentrated. Concentration that we're looking for is a natural process that arises when the conditions are just right. So we're setting in motion a natural process that will lead to a certain result that will be skillful because the mind will be very still, it will be very pleasant, and the best thing about concentration is the mind sees things that it normally doesn't see because that mind, a concentrated mind, is much more subtle than our ordinary mind. So we see things in a more subtle level. The insight the mind has is deeper, more transformative, which is why it's so important to have concentration. Before I go back to this article, I'll just mention a simile that the Buddha used that is very useful in understanding concentration, the the relationship between concentration and wisdom. He used this image of a honed and heavy axe. So if you want to, if you have to cut down a tree, you can have a very honed axe, really sharp, a lot of wisdom in the mind. The mind really knows, but it's just intellectual wisdom. So it's like trying to cut down a tree with a razor blade. It's not going to happen. Or you can have a lot of concentration, a lot of steadiness. It's like trying to cut down a tree with a sledgehammer. It's not going to happen. But if you bring both of those principles together, the weight of a sledgehammer and the sharpness of a razor blade, then you can cut down a tree. And so the weight in this image is the concentration and the sharpness is the wisdom. Wisdom knows what it's doing. It knows what to investigate. It knows what's relevant. Like, in terms of our practice, stress and the abandoning of stress is relevant. Right? That's an interesting thing to look at. But we need to look at it with a very subtle, a very grounded, stable attention. If the mind is flitting about, we'll never learn anything about how the mind gets all entangled, caught up, beat up by its own obsessive patterns. But if the mind is really stable with concentration, peaceful, clear, no agenda because it's content in itself, then it can really investigate how things come and go, how drama comes and goes, how obsessive patterns come and go. Because now the mind's not so caught. So it really... in when a neurotic pattern re-arises in the mind, which they will, right? Because they have momentum. It's not personal. It's not like you or I go looking for a neurotic thing to think about or get an obsessive pattern to spin with. They just come up because those patterns have momentum in our hearts, in our minds. So when it does, but now it does in a concentrated mind, 
well, the contrast is so obvious. The agitation of that neurotic pattern that's now arising in our mind in contrast to a calm, stable, pure, clear mind. So it's from that point of view, it's so easy to see what that neurotic pattern is. And what we see is it's not personal. See, that's like wisdom. It's not personal. But now it's just like a razor blade. Like You can really get it's not personal intellectually. But to see it with concentration is amazing. To see it in the moment in a subtle way, how these old patterns of being defensive or being insecure or being self-conscious or being thinking we're the best or whatever neurotic pattern tends to occupy your mind, to see that with a very concentrated, stable, clear, no-agenda mind is revolutionary. really changes the mind stream, like how the mind unfolds from that point onward. So we want this 360. We don't want a tight concentration because we're really looking for stability. And if we use fear or greed to make the mind concentrated, it's a brittle, fragile kind of concentration. right? But if we use relaxation, like the mind is settling, that's a more stable concentration, more stable peace. <clears throat> so he goes on, he says... Uh, because the habit of the mind is to focus its awareness in one spot here, then one spot there, moving around, but there's always the one spot, one spot, one spot. It opens up a little bit and then squeezes off again, opens up a little bit, squeezes off again, and nothing has a chance to grow. But if you allow things to open up throughout the whole body, you realize that if you think about anything at all, you destroy that openness. You've got to be very, very careful, very still to allow this open fullness to develop. So one of the images that's very useful, and we do this here at the center with our children's programs. You've seen those. We'll be seeing the, the real thing tomorrow on Tuesday. But those snow globes, you know, you shake it up, and then the whole thing gets little flakes. And then after a minute or two, things settle down. Well, we do this with the kids. You know, we have a jar and then we put some sediment and we have the kids shake it up and then the, the water's all dirty and, and hard to see through. But then they watch it. It's sort of like a meditation for the kids. They watch it, they watch it, they watch it. You know, and after a couple minutes, after three or four minutes, all that sediment settles back down and it's clear. So that's a really useful image when you're sitting and you have the intention to settle your mind into a concentrated state, it's like the settling is a natural process. You don't do that settling. It's just part of the law of gravity. What you do, what I do, is we stir it up. So concentration is about ceasing the stirring up activity, not about concentrating the mind. So we're not like taking the attention and like pressing it into the present moment. Don't move. Stay there. You know, that just creates pressure like equal, like in a, this is a great line, in a frictionless universe, there's always an equal and opposite move. And the mind, in fact, all of reality is this frictionless universe. So when 
I use an ego stance to make my mind still, there will be an equal and opposite push, which we call agitation, right? That disturbs the mind. So we need to understand that concentration is a natural settling process that can't be stopped when the conditions are right. And so the conditions that make it right is to begin to tease out the activity of the mind that kicks up dust. And now it starts to make sense why we might invite the attention to attune, to pay attention to the breath coming in and the breath going out. You see, it keeps it out of trouble. I can't plan about tomorrow. I can't worry about this terrible thing that I've got to do or remember this exciting thing that happened yesterday, right? Because I've got a job. I got to be with the next moment of the in-breath and then the next moment and then the next moment and then the first moment of the out-breath and then... And so when we learn how to give ourselves to the concentration technique wholeheartedly, 100%, then we can't do those things that kick up the dust. We cultivate a wholeheartedness with something simple, ordinary, or something beautiful like cultivating loving-kindness. So either it's something wholesome and beautiful. Loving-kindness doesn't kick up dust. When you cultivate real loving-kindness, the heart relaxes because it feels really good. This is another uh, important principle with concentration. When there's wholesome pleasantness, like the experience of universal love or compassion, uh, authentic experience of gratitude, authentic, authentic experience of forgiveness, it's pleasant. And the heart, it gathers in that pleasantness. It shows up for it, right? Because why wouldn't it? We pay the heart, the mind pays attention, and it stops doing neurotic stuff. That's the real easy way to get concentrated. But it's not so, you, you have to sort of cultivate a way or learn a way to bring those wholesome attitudes to mind. But there are a lot of techniques. That's what we practice here, by the way, at the center on the first Friday of each month, the Loving Kindness Practice Group. It's a drop-in group from 7 to 8.30. We do, they're called the four divine abodes or the four Brahma Viharas, the different concentration practices on different aspects of love. And they're very powerful on all kinds of ways, just on a therapeutic level. It's very healing to have states of absorption around love or compassion or joy or equanimity, gratitude, forgiveness. But even more so, more potent is how, what a great concentration technique. Normally we use things like the breath or other ordinary experience because they're always available. And once the mind trains itself to be wholehearted, it's like guaranteed way into calm and then in a good set, states of more profound concentration transforming concentration. So he goes on, I'm going to read a little bit more from this section. So these qualities of consistency, care and heedfulness are important in allowing the state of concentration to develop. Without them, nothing much seems to happen. You have a little bit of concentration, then you step on it. A little bit of concentration, 
then you squeeze it off as you go looking at something else, thinking about something else. And so whatever little bits and pieces of concentration you do have don't seem very remarkable. They don't get a chance to be remarkable. Concentration takes time, and our society is pretty extraordinary in fostering the expectation that things should happen quickly. If anything's going to be good, it has to happen quickly. It has to be in an instant. And so, by and large, we've lost the ability to stay with things as they develop slowly. We've lost the ability to keep chipping away, chipping away, chipping away at a large task that's going to take some time and can't be speeded up. And that's why it's so useful to have the sense of being in it for the long haul and also seeing that even the work we do in the direction of concentration is really good work. So it's not like we don't get any benefit until we get a deep state of concentration. Any movement from being crazy and neurotic to being a little less crazy and neurotic, we can notice. But we have to look at that. So it's really nice, for example, at the end of the set, we did a little bit of it today, to take a few moments and just assess. Remember, it's always about cause and effect in the Buddhist teachings. Okay, this is how my mind was at the beginning of the set. This is how my mind is now. What, what change, if any, has happened? And how can I connect the dots? Like, how, do, how does my mind understand how this changed, change happened? What were the proximate causes or the supporting causes for the stabilizing of attention or the clarifying of the mind or moving from a unpleasant to an inner happiness? What supported that? How does the mind understand how this came to be? in this lawful universe where nothing just happens by accident. How did this unfold like this, to be this? This is really our job to just share what the Buddha said. I can't remember if I read this two weeks ago, but just the passage. And what, Venerable One, is the reward and blessing of tranquility? The Buddha often taught this way. He'd ask himself a question and then answer it. And what is the reward and blessing of tranquility? Like, what does tranquility lead to? I mentioned this already. Happiness. Sukha is the word. Similar to the word sugar. Sukha. And of happiness, what does happiness set in motion? Concentration, the Buddha answered himself. And what, Venerable One, is the reward and blessing of concentration? What does concentration, a still, clear mindset of motion, Um, vision and knowledge according to reality, right? That mind, because a concentrated mind has no agenda. It's peaceful. It's not trying to make something happen. So when it sees something, it sees it without an agenda. So, vision and knowledge according to reality. And when you have insight, vision and knowledge according to reality, what does that set in motion? And the Buddha says, turning away and non-attachment. The heart lets go of taking things personally when it sees things as they actually are. It sees things as process, not personal. And so it lets go. And then what is the what does that letting go set in motion? The vision and knowledge with regard to deliverance, right? 
the heart now recognizes that it's free. That it's free of wrong view, of grasping, clinging to experience. So it's in the world, aware, intimate, but not clinging, not tight about what's coming and going. So that's the whole path, beginning with tranquility, happiness, concentration, seeing things as they are, having insight, letting go of attachment, understanding this is what it's all about. This is the path. This is the fruit of the path. So I want to leave it here so we have a little bit more time tonight to talk about our meditation practice. It's really useful, many of you know this already, but it's really useful to hear people sharing about what they've been learning, what's been challenging, questions they have about the instructions, because we learn a lot about our own practice hearing other people talk about theirs. So we have about 10 or 15 minutes. It'd be nice to hear questions. Yeah, Tim. Yeah, this was uh, this was really really timely for me. I um, uh, in a very normal human way, I like made some unskillful choices on Thursday that I've been keeping myself about ever since. And it's like even rides to like you know pretty like familiar cycle of suffering. Um, and I had a and I had a kind of a positive breakthrough moment, moment today when I was biking and I was like frustrated with myself. I had been frustrated with myself. It's like oh like I'm a meditation practitioner. I should be able to this out and I haven't figured it out yet. And I kind of I realized, oh, this is, you know, this is lawful. This is just, these are just, um, this is just a pattern playing out. And so I started paying attention to what the patterns were. And it, it's, it, it's interesting. There are three that I've started to notice uh, pretty consistently. Um, one of them is like whatever I'm doing is interrupted by me like retracing the, like, the uh, course of events and trying to like in my brain play out, oh, I could have done this differently or I could have done this differently. That comes up a lot. There's also uh, like an imagined future, which is which is funny because like it's imagined future based on all of my least like favorite memories of how things have played out in the past. So like I'm formulating an inevitable future, like oh it's gonna happen, it's gonna be like this because of these things. I know that that's how it all works. Um, and last, it's just kind of funny. I'm like compulsively like looking at my cell phone for no good reason. <laughs> Consistent with our formal practice, like if you can get in 30 minutes to an hour a day, most days, <coughs> go on a retreat every once in a while when you can, eventually you'll really, your mind will start learning something about tranquility and concentration. 
and it will start to carry over into your daily life. You'll just be more calm. And then the insight happens more easily with that more steady state of calm. Because, it, like I said earlier, it just stands out. So it really is important. Like, there's not going to be... You could do a lot of study, and, and let's say you really get intellectually what the Buddha is saying, and you do a good job at sort of memorizing it or reflecting on it, so you own it to some degree, the, teach, the basic teachings about not clinging and about um, the impersonal nature of what's happening in our minds externally, internally. You really get it. But without the concentration, there won't be the breakthrough insights because the mind that understands and the mind that's seeing experience is distorted by its attachments. And the thing that tranquility and concentration does, it, it clarifies the mind so it really understands what happens when the mind gets attached. And then letting go is very easy when the mind sees how destructive attachment is. But we could be attached forever and know that we're attached and not let go of it because it seems to make sense. You gave so many good examples, Tim, about these just sort of neurotic patterns that we all have. And like you, you know that they're neurotic patterns. We all know that they're neurotic patterns. But why do we keep doing them? because we don't actually see the cost of that attachment, that clinging, that reactivity. We don't see it, because there's not enough contrast to reveal it for what it is, destructive and unhelpful. But if you really saw it, somebody gave an example today, we just finished a residential retreat that I was teaching um, with 36 of our community members here, and. Uh, See, what did he say? Oh, it was just, I can't remember the exact situation, but basically somebody saw somebody really acting out some personality habit that they have. And when they really saw the other person doing it, it's like, I don't want to be like that. Right? And you, we all know that experience, like, you know, somebody making a stupid joke which we do all the time, right? And then we see somebody else making a stupid joke that just falls flat. And it's like the strongest resolve in the world arises in our mind. Don't ever do that again. <laughs> and it's a little bit like that in contrast to equ uh, equanimity or tranquility or the peace of concentration. When something plays out in the mind or even externally out in the world and we see it, from the point of view of a concentrated, quiet, clear mind, it's like shocking what we do. You know, little tiny things that normally we wouldn't notice at all, like, like just uh, like on retreat when we have more concentration, I notice all the time that when I'm approaching a door with somebody else, how I kind of like, you know, I decide I'm going to go first. And it's shocking to me because I don't think of myself as being a bully. <laughs> but this is very subtle, but it's real, you know, because it's like some expression of self-importance. And that situation and the calm that allows my mind to see it really helps me to understand the pervasiveness of that 
self-importance, <clears throat> or just that <coughs> sense I've got stuff to do, you know, which is like Atlas with the world on its shoulders, you know, it's like, I've got stuff to do. I'm a suffering being, <laughs> you know, get out of my way. I've got some suffering I need to do. <laughs> so we really, you know, so when we practice, it's, it's good to understand the value. And this is especially important now as um, sort of in the insight meditation, the Vipassana scene, this, this is the lineage of com- that Common Ground is in, there's a lot of emphasis on wisdom teachings, which are great and very useful. But we have to remember that what makes the wisdom teachings useful is a tranquil mind. They're not that useful when our mind is agitated. And actually, we can use them in abusive ways. It's like, oh, it's all empty. You know, we sort of throw these wisdom teachings around, like it doesn't matter, it's just causes and conditions. And it can be actually hurtful to ourselves and others um, sort of spinning this nihilistic idea that it's just karma or just this or just that. Tranquility really helps us use these teachings appropriately. Thanks for bringing that up, Tim, and sharing your practice with us. Other thoughts that come to mind? Yeah. Paige, is it? Yeah. I'm not sure if this is an appropriate question, but um, I had a friend come to me last week and tell me that she's leaving her husband of 10 years with this guy she met on the internet two weeks ago. Hmm. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on how to relate <laughs> to someone that seems to be in the midst of a lot of delusion. Well, I don't know how well you know this person, but um, you know any number of things could be true, like the marriage has been falling apart for a long time. So the delusion might be that the marriage hasn't been a marriage for a long time. That could be the delusion. Or the delusion could be that some difficulties coming up in the person's life may not have anything to do with the relationship, and they're looking for a distraction. And this drama is a convenient distraction. Is related, you know, in a more serious way to things that Tim was talking about, which is our mind's addiction to drama. It's like, and if there's not enough drama, we tend to create it. We, whether it's through some self-destructive action, or you know, whatever we might do, we'll watch horror films or something like that. But something to stir the pot, to kind of create some sense of significance or meaning. And falling in love or, you know, the possibility of the right person in my life, it can, uh, it can have a real, like heroin, you know, it's just like that taste. I mean, it's been in deeply imprinted in our minds, the soulmate, the right person. And uh, so when that bug gets under the skin, it's like we do crazy things around these, around these sorts of areas. So... <clears throat> You know, one thing you might do with a, a, if it's a good friend and you have a trusting relationship, you might provide a very neutral, non-judging, wise presence. So you're like a mirror. And ask the person to talk about what's going on. And ask questions, non-judging questions, but questions that sort of draw out of the person what they're thinking, what they're feeling, how it unfolded, cause and effect, wise, and you're just, 
in a non-judging way, you're just mirroring back. So if they start talking in a really deluded way, you're getting that, and <clears throat> but you're holding it all with wisdom and compassion. And sometimes that's, that, that's a powerful reflection without you having to necessarily say anything, but just the way you're asking questions helps them see, have their mind, their own mind process reflected back to them. So that's something you might do to them. I just want to understand. You know, I just care about you and I want to understand. Obviously, this is a big move and help me understand. So that could be useful. And anything you can do to help the person get really relaxed and peaceful so that they're not running on a kind of a charged energy which will affect how they're thinking about things, that can be helpful too, to get a little distance from everything a little space so they're not uh, reacting to the proximity to the person or to the possibilities can be helpful. The other thing is to understand that it's easy for people to make mistakes, you know, and to really learn your own lesson there because you may not be able to stop them, may not be your responsibility to stop them, but you can really take it in and just keep watching how it unfolds. Maybe time for one more question or comment, if anybody else has a thought. Yeah, Julia. So you were talking about raking the leaves and um, being wholehearted. I heard you twice, I think, today talk about being wholehearted. And I have some tasks that don't feel as joyful as raking the leaves, even though that can be um, not joyful. Okay? I wonder if you talk a little bit more about being, uh, I don't know, present wholehearted face and tasks that feel Yeah. Well, the thing is, we should do everything wholeheartedly, right? Because it's just functional. So just because we don't like to do something doesn't mean dwelling on the not liking of it makes it easier, does it? No. It makes it harder. So if we have to do something, that means it's our life, it's unavoidable. It's like being a parent but not wanting to be a parent. You know, that would be hell. And a lot of us have those kinds of hells with our jobs. It's like we have a job. In a sense, we want it because we could leave it and be poor or whatever, be homeless. We choose not to. Well, so let's make that a positive yes. Yes, I'm doing this for now. This is what I'm doing. And I'm going to give myself to it. And I'm going to come alive in it. Because otherwise we end up squeezing ourselves off from life. Uh, this is my, my, what my life is about. This is what I do in order to have my life. You know, and we just keep doing that more and more until we don't have any life left. <laughs> so, you know, that the question is, how can I do this activity in a way that's enlivening? And if I really can't, is there any way to leave it behind? You know, if we really can't do something in a way that's enlivening, then we really should look for a change, if we can. And if we can't, then we should keep our minds open to the fact that maybe this can be enlivening. And part of it is just putting it in a bigger context, like, I really am grateful to be earning the money that I'm earning so that you know, I can feed this body, or I can take care of my family, or I can 
and to see that piece of it. So it has to be quick, Kat. Yeah, I just want to comment on it. It's like um, when I've been doing it, I have one of those jobs where basically I've become the guy who makes his job. Um, and what I'm finding is that gratitude and working in that gratitude and staying in that is an incredibly powerful game changer. You know, and facing tasks that are difficult, attitude, gratitude. I mean, I am grateful that I'm making some, I'm, you know, making money. Yeah. And that I can go and be helpful in some way. Or finding that little bit of gratitude in the face of adversity yeah. helps to be more. Yeah, gratitude is a powerfully transforming emotion. And even if you can't have gratitude, but to see it as a petty tyrant that is a, your teacher, like it has something to teach me, like how to suffer less in this or maybe even moments of no suffering in this. That's a lot of wisdom. So these difficult places in our lives, if we can see them as teachers teaching us how not to suffer in the midst of difficult circumstances. And then that, those insights go everywhere. You know, because if we learn how not to suffer in this situation, so much of life gets easy. So we have to leave it here, we'll just take a few seconds, let go of the words, just enough time to take one or two breaths together. Appreciate our teacher, the Buddha, and all the women, all the men that have practiced since then, 2,500 years so that we get to be the recipients of these wise teachings. And now it's our turn in our busy lives to do the best we can to develop the concentration and the wisdom, the compassion, and to become causes for real peace and freedom from suffering here in our hearts and in the world. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.